that's really a great opportunity for kids uh, to get involved, students. Uh, parents, just give your kids the credit card, send them to the store, and they'll fill out uh, several hundred boxes for you. And uh, you'll get the crowns in heaven. So uh, it's a great, it's a win-win for everybody. Uh, <clears throat> we're in Matthew chapter uh, 26, and we'll be looking at verses 30 through 35. Matthew chapter 26, 30 through 35. If you would, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. The word of God says, After singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike down the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. But Peter said to him, Even though all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you that this very night, before a rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. All the disciples said the same thing too. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning that we can come and look at your word. I pray that the Spirit would just uh, illumine our minds so that we can get an image of what's going on in this text, but not just to satisfy curiosities, Father, to put them into practice, so that it will change and transform our lives. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You may be seated. Uh, I used to work for a home builder in uh, Winston-Salem, North Carolina. He built custom homes, and uh, my, my job was... Uh, to kind of clean up after uh, the people were in there working. He, he kind of liked the house to be all nice and clean because sometimes the, the customer would come through and want to look at the progress of their home, so I would sweep and throw away lumber and so forth. But he had different houses kind of scattered around Winston-Salem, and I would have to drive from site to site. And as I would drive, I was listening to a radio station, and they had this guy by the name of Dave Ramsey on there. And he provided financial counsel for, for individuals. People would call in, and uh, they would uh, share their financial situation with them. Now, people usually don't like talking about finances. So, I mean, you got to be desperate to get on a radio station and talk about the financial mistakes that you've made. And, and, and sure enough, they were desperate, desperate people. They made some mistakes, some things had happened, and, and they were in a situation where they had no hope. They were desperate. He would uh, talk with them, and it seemed like right then on the show at that time, he would, you could hear him punching numbers like he was calculating stuff out, and, and he'd give them a, a road map for, for hope, how to get out of their situation. Didn't matter how much they were making, didn't matter what they were doing, he could calculate out a, uh, a plan to get them out of that situation that they were in. And the people, most of the time, seemed rather happy to receive this hope. Now, the thing was, though, is that um, Dave would give them this hope, but it was, it was always contingent upon something. Uh, and it, they always had to follow and obey his advice. In other words, they, they couldn't just 
continue doing what they were doing before that got them into the situation. They, they had to follow his advice. They had to put it into practice. They had to obey it. And unless they did that, they were going to continue being in their same situation. And we see in this text something very similar to that. There's a thing that we have to follow that Jesus presents. Now, we've been looking at this text, and, and Jesus has just gotten done instituting the Lord's Supper, which he says is the new covenant. It's, it's this covenant of, of uh, a forgiveness of sins. Now, this, this is a very important uh, covenant because it, it provides forgiveness, forgiveness for sins. Not just uh, sins that the person has done in the past or maybe even sins in the present, but it provides a, a uh, forgiveness for sins for the future as well, all sins that the people do. And he has just gone through and explained that um, this covenant will be for the forgiveness of sins. Now, as we look at this text, we're going to be seeing that uh, Matthew presents that Jesus restores scattered people to follow and to obey by waiting for them when they fail. Uh, waiting for them when they fail. It, Jesus is going to give hope to uh, his disciples to follow and to obey him. That's what Jesus is going to be doing in this text. He's going to give them hope to, uh, to follow and to obey him. And we see this in verse 30. It says, after singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Now, uh, I don't know what you might think of when you think of Jesus and the disciples in this room, and they're singing a hymn. Uh, I don't know if you imagine like a kind of a, a waltz type thing, and they're kind of holding arms and swaying back and forth. I don't know what image you have of Jesus and his disciples singing after eating. Um, but it, it probably wasn't any of those things. It definitely wasn't like, you know, um, uh, Handel's Messiah or anything like that. Uh, R.T. France, he's, uh, he, he wrote a commentary on the book of Matthew, and he did a lot of research of, of uh, what Jews did during this time, especially during Passover. And he uh, said that it was a custom to kind of chant through uh, Psalm 113 through 118. Some would just choose one psalm to chant through, and, and others would chant through more. And they would recite these psalms. They would recite it at the end of the Passover meal. It, it's an interesting group of psalms. If you would, please uh, turn to Psalm 113. But when you uh, see these psalms, they're, they're kind of interesting. There, there's a, a praise to the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord, uh, 113. It says, Blessed be the name of the Lord uh, from this time forth and forever. From the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. The Lord is high above all nations. His glory is above, above the heavens. And then verse 5, it says, who, who is like our God who is enthroned on high? who humbles himself to behold the things that we are in heaven and in the earth. And it talks about how he is involved with the poor and helps them. Now, Jesus knows he's hours away from being betrayed. He knows he's hours away from being beaten and tortured. He knows also that he's 
hours away from being crucified, dying a, a terrible death. And yet maybe he is saying this psalm that's reflecting on the character of God, the praise be to God. A lot of times we're willing to give praise to God when things are going well in our life. When, when our boss finally realizes how important and valuable we are and they give us that raise. When uh, the teacher recognizes how good a student we are and he gives us that grade, uh, we're willing to praise the Lord for that. But Jesus knows he's about to go through all this difficulty and he's praising. Or, or maybe he did Psalm 114. It talks about when Israel went forth from Egypt. How, how Israel left Egypt and, and they got to the Jordan and, and, and the Jordan couldn't keep them back. It says, uh, even, even the sea. So why, what ails you, O sea, that you flee? What could stand in the pathway of God, the sovereign, omnipotent God? But what can stand in its way, in God's way? Nothing can stand in God's way. Can you imagine seeing that, recognizing, knowing that you're about to go through suffering, through hardship, through a difficulty like this? It, 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 a person has to understand that God is sovereignly in control to be able to go through a difficult situation praising him. Because if he's just that person that's up there that sometimes gets involved and sometimes doesn't, then what do you do in a time of difficulty? But he knows the character of God. Or, or Psalm 115. Uh, it talks about uh, not to us, O oh Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory because of your loving kindness, because of your truth. It goes on to talk about, compare God with, with idols who have mouths, but you know they, they can't say anything. And, and the contrast is established between God who is, has loving kindness, has this love, loyal love for his people, and the idol which has none of that. What, what can he do? What can the idol do? It's a, just sit there. And, and, and God loves and, and he's compassionate. He's saying these things. Or maybe uh, Psalm 116. I have loved the Lord because he hears my voice and my supplications. Can you imagine saying that knowing that you're on the route to being turned over and to be tortured? that God does hear, and yet in his sovereign will, he still allows pain and suffering to come into your life, even as to his own son. Wow. It takes someone to really have a faith in God. And, and the thing is, is we have a problem sometimes really recognizing how God restores. If, if I fail one of my kids and say, hey, tomorrow uh, I was going to get them an ice cream today, but I fail, and so I say to them, hey, tomorrow I'll get you two scoops of ice cream at the, at the place, and somehow I think that will make it up, right? Uh, can God offer us that when we're going through uh, a difficulty? When, when we look at years of disability and sickness, uh, years of pain, and we think, how are you going to restore this to me? How are you going to restore uh, my health, my, my mobility? Or we think about death. You want to give the person back to me? 
And for us, it's, it's hard to imagine how he's going to restore it. Yet God is so powerful that he does restore. He does make all things new. And it requires a faith in praising the Lord, knowing that he is sovereign, omnipotent. If it was me, I'd probably do Psalm 117 because it's the shortest. It's just two verses. I'm not sure I could recite one of the other longer ones. This is praise the Lord, all nations, loud him, all peoples, for his loving kindness is great toward us. And the truth of the Lord is everlasting. His loving kindness, God loving kindness, when he's about to be betrayed. Can you imagine singing that, knowing that you're about to be betrayed, knowing that you're about to be tortured, that God is chesed, he has loyal covenantal love towards you. Oh, you'd have to submit yourself, humble yourself to knowing that God's ways is much different than your way. Or, or Psalm 118, where he gives thanks to the Lord. He is good. He's good. We don't know which psalm he sang. They say at this time they were singing those, and it's very probable that he did choose one of these and was chanting them, reciting them with his other, with the disciples there with him. Can you imagine singing about how God is loving kindness, how he works and acts according to his will, how Egypt cannot stand up in front of him, how the enemies fall, even Jordan cannot hold itself against the Lord. And the sea, the sea is ale, it's sick, moves away from the Lord. But as we go back to Matthew and we look at our text, we see that there they are, they sing this hymn, and then there's a movement that happens where they go to the Mount of Olives. They leave the city. Now, uh, what time of night is it? It's late. They would have probably started eating around 9 o'clock, 10 o'clock at night. You sit down and eat and chit-chat, and then you've got to explain the Lord's Supper. It takes a little while. And then you've got to sing through, chant through a couple of these psalms. It's late. It's been a long day for Jesus. Miracles and teaching that he's been doing. And he goes back to the Mount of Olives now. And it says in verse 31, Then Jesus said to them, You will all fall away. You will all fall away. It's an interesting word. It, it, uh, it, it has this meaning of to let oneself be led into sin. To let oneself be led into sin. It's a permissive passive if you're into that type of stuff. It's not that Jesus is going to lead them into sin, but they're about to come into a situation, a very difficult situation, and what's in their heart is going to come out. Just like uh, as you have a bag of tea and you pour the hot water, what comes out? Well, pineapple juice, of course, right? No, what's going to come out? What will come out is whatever's in that tea bag. That's what's going to come out. The hot water will just extract what's ever inside. And this word, they're going to fall away. Whatever is inside of them at the time of the difficult situation is going to come out. And what it's going to do is they're going to be 
led away, they're going to run away, they're going to rebel against, they're going to betray the one who chose them. Isn't that incredible to think? He's telling them this is going to happen. He says, for it is written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered. I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep will scatter. He starts quoting from Zechariah chapter 13. Zechariah chapter uh, 13 is an interesting uh, passage because the first six verses start dealing with that day, which is a reference to the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord has two aspects to it, one of punishment to the nations and to Israel that eventually turns to a restoration of Israel. And then all the nations turn to Israel to worship the Lord. It has that, the first six verses deal with that, but then verse 7 does a, a change. It, it changes to start talking about a time before the day of the Lord. And in it, it talks about my shepherd uh, will be, uh, strike the shepherd, it says, that the sheep may be scattered. Now, there's an interesting thing that here it says, uh, it is written, I will strike down the shepherd. And the, sheep will be, uh, and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered. Who is doing the striking? Well, Christ is receiving the punishment of our sins. God is putting it on him. All of our sins. The sins of the whole world. But the result will be is that they will be all dispersed. They'll scatter out. They won't stay close to their shepherd. They won't be beside their shepherd. Rather, they will all start to wander and wander and wander off. That's what they'll do. That's what sheep do. And he tells them this. Now, as we look at this, we see that the difficulty exposes their heart. The, the difficult situation of the shepherd getting struck down, it exposes the disciples' heart. And, and what do they do when they're exposed, when the difficult situation comes into their life? Well, they, they, they move away. They'll rebel. They'll become traitors to God. They'll, they'll turn away from him. Hey, can you imagine Jesus telling you this after you've just got done talking about uh, chanting the psalm about God's sovereignty and how he, he, he cares, how he has loving kindness, and you're talking about how great God is, but then in a moment of difficulty, you're going to turn and betray. Oh, he doesn't believe him. The disciples don't believe him. When we think about that this difficulty exposes the disciples' heart, uh, some of us might have gone through a difficult situation and um, it, it's exposed our heart. Or some of us might be going through a difficult situation right now and that difficult situation is exposing our heart. Uh, we... <laughs> We got married, anticipating to live with this person the rest of our life, and, and that person left. Or we thought we were going to have this job, and we we're going to retire from it, and we're all going to be so happy, and the job let us go. Or we thought we were really doing well in this assignment in school, and the teacher didn't think so. <laughs> he gave a really bad grade. And you were, you were thinking that things were going to be different, but now you're going through a difficult situation and it's exposed what's really inside your heart. 
And when you expose what's inside of your heart, maybe before that bad situation, before that difficult situation, maybe you thought your spiritual life was way up here. I mean, you were like, you were up there with Paul. I mean, at least with Paul. But now this thing has exposed and certain things have come out. You've said certain things. You've acted a certain way. You've behaved in a certain way. And, and really the floor is not low enough to show where your spiritual life is right now. You need to dig a couple feet down to just show how low you are. And that's what difficulty does is it exposes. But what does a person do in a situation like that? But when they, I mean, they thought they were up there with Paul. But really, they're down, really down. It's a depressing thought. Well, we see that Jesus restores people. That's what he does in in this text. It's quite amazing to see how he does this. He, He restores them. Verse 32, it says, But after I have been raised... I will go ahead of you to Galilee. After I have been raised. Now, this raise means to awake, like if the person were asleep, you you wake them up. Uh, Jesus says that he's going to go ahead to Galilee, which this, it makes two statements, at least two statements and at least two implications. The, The first statement that Jesus is making is that, well, he will die, He's going to rise again. He'll have life again. And that's a statement. I mean, it's a kind of crazy type statement. I mean, theologically, we could think about that. Daniel talked about that, that the righteous will be risen uh, for everlasting life, and then the, the, the wicked will be judged. And, and so, yeah, we could think about that. But then Jesus makes another statement, and that statement is that he would go to Galilee. And, and he would go to Galilee. Let that sink in for a little bit. I'm going to die, but it's okay. I'm going to rise up, and I'm going to meet you in Galilee. Uh, this last summer, we uh, had a memorial service for Pastor Fred Wiesen. Uh, can you imagine, just for a little bit, if he said, like if he had had the opportunity before he passed away, said, uh, in the fall, I'm going to start a, a new series on Revelation at the church, because it's been a little while since we've done Revelation. What, what would y'all do? Would you not just stare at him? Be like, okay. No, you won't. Right? I mean, that's the natural thing. That's the human thing to do. Jesus says, I'm going to meet you at Galilee. What? Our beloved teacher? The idea of raising again, yeah, we can see that in the Old Testament. But you're talking about being in our presence and talking with us and you're making plans after death. Let that sink in. I mean, who, who talks like that? Nobody talks like that. We might make plans and we maybe hope that people will do something for us in the funeral and so forth, but we don't make plans for after that. But Jesus does. Now, it it implies a certain thing. It implies that they would also go to Galilee to meet Jesus there. It implies that. He says, I'm going ahead of you. It means that they're going to be going there too. It takes 
a lot of steps of faith for them to do that. Sure, they see Jesus there in Jerusalem after he's risen from the dead, but to go all the way up to Galilee and wait for him, it takes another step of faith. If we read the Gospel of John, we realize Peter gets kind of tired of waiting. He says, I'm going fishing. It takes a step of faith to wait for Jesus there at Galilee. But the other thing that it implies here is that even though they're going to fall away, Jesus wants to meet them there. That's an incredible thing. Jesus still wants to meet them there, even though they're going to fall fall away. He has this desire. I mean, that's the reason he's telling them, I'm going to meet you in Galilee, is because he wants them also there with him. He has this desire that even though they're going to betray him, even though they're going to turn away from him, even though all these things, Jesus still has a desire to meet them again after he dies up in Galilee. Wow. That's incredible. Matthew 26, 33, Peter has a reply to Jesus. Peter says to him, Even though all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. I I don't know how to take this exactly. Uh, How is he saying this? What's the, the, the tone of his voice? Is he saying, like, I know something that you don't know? Like, like you think you've got me pegged, but really, I know something you don't know. It would be kind of arrogant of Peter to be thinking like that, wouldn't it not? Or maybe he's saying it as an emphatic declarative sentence. I will never fall away. How is Peter saying this? The, the tone makes a lot of difference. One is a, an arrogant, prideful thing, saying that Jesus knows some things, but not, not everything. He doesn't know me. The other one is saying that, I don't care what you say, I'm doing this. Both are come out of a pride. At verse 34, Jesus says to him, Truly I say to you, that this very night, before a a rooster uh, crows, you will deny me three times. Now it's late. They've had supper, they've eaten, he's talked about the Lord's Supper, They've uh, sang a couple of the psalms. They've walked out of the city. They're at the Mount of Olives. How many hours before the crow starts crowing? The rooster starts crowing. Uh, How how long? How many hours? Uh, If it's like Venezuela, those things seem like they sing all night long. Uh, How how many hours before he's going to do this? Can we say at least six? Can we say six? Maybe he's got six hours that he's got to play around with. And Jesus says, in this time span, you're going to deny me. Not once, not twice, three times. That's incredible to think of. Jesus knows details. I mean, it's not just vagueness. He knows exactly what they're doing, going to do wrong. Peter said to him, even if I have to die, Uh, with you, I will not deny you. All the disciples said the same thing too. Two. As in, they're agreeing with what Peter's saying. That word deny, uh, it it carries this idea to uh, refuse, to recognize, to acknowledge. It's an act where a person is selfish. They act selfishly. 
They, they act in a way for self-preservation. Uh, he said, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to deny you. Oh, but he will. He will. And Jesus knows. And what's interesting is that the adverb there that's translated to, it, it's in the same way. So as, as Peter is saying these things, the disciples are also in the same way, in the same manner, saying the same thing that Peter is saying. We're not going to deny you. We're not going to fall away. And if we were there, I would guess that we'd be right there with him. Me? No, you don't understand. I live in Texas. I'm not going to fall away. I'll be faithful all the way to the end. As we look at this, we see that they do. We know how the story ends. And I, and I want to say that sometimes we let negative negatives define us. Sometimes we let negatives define us. The temptation would be that they would look at this situation and say, oh my word, I'm terrible. Who, who leaves their teacher to die? Who abandons the one that chose, chose them? Who, who does that? It's not like they went and signed up for Jesus. Jesus came and got them, chose them, invited them to come along with. They got to see his, his power, his miracles. We know from uh, Paul and from the author of Hebrews that to see Jesus is to see the Father. So basically they had an intimate knowledge of the Father more than us because we don't get to see Jesus interacting like that except through the text. They got to see these things and they betrayed him. It would be easy to allow the negatives to define them. It's also uh, easy for the negatives to define us, too. Sometimes we'll define ourselves as, I'm a divorcee. Something happened in my life, and now I'm a divorcee. Or, I am the victim of sexual abuse. Or, I am an unemployed person. I am a disabled person. I am a orphan. I'm a widow. Widower. And sometimes it's easy to think ourselves in categories of negative experiences that have happened in our life, but that's not where they need to put their focus on. Their focus is, should be on, not on their failure, but on the fact that Jesus wants to see them in Galilee. That's the incredible statement. That even though they failed, Jesus still wants to see them. An act of grace, an act of mercy on part of Jesus. Now, Jesus knew exactly what the disciples were going to do. I mean, exactly. He knew they'd fall away. He knew they'd scatter. Uh, he knew that they would deny him. He, he knew intimately. Can you imagine being at, uh, at the altar for you're getting married? And I'm thinking American-type classic wedding in a church and there's the pastor, and he says, do you uh, take the name of the spouse? And it says, uh, and uh, in year such and such, after being married, they're going to uh, use up your whole credit card, uh, ruin your credit. Three years after that, they're going to cheat on you. And then uh, when you're really old, then they'll come back to you. Do you take? Well, who would do that? No. Bye. That's what we would say. We're not going to knowingly say yes. I would love a spouse like that that just uses up 
ruins the credit, and then cheats on me. Jesus knows exactly how they're going to fail. And yet he still invites them to Galilee. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4 says, Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. That's an incredible statement. What, what sins did God know about us? Just our past? Or does he also know the present sins that we're involved in? How about the future sins that we will do? Yet God, in his grace and his mercy, still chose us. He loved us and, and, and saved us and redeemed us, even though we didn't deserve it. That is an incredible statement to think about, that God did this for us. It's easy to focus on the negative, but instead of focusing on the negative, one has to focus on the fact that he wants a relationship with them. He invites them to come, come to him. Now, how do we see this restoration happen? The restoration happens only when they put their faith in God and not self. See, they, they could look at their failure and say, oh my word, I, I, I didn't think I was going to do that, and I did that. I, I failed Jesus. I, who does that? Who betrays their teacher? And you could think that, that they see that, or, or we could even apply it to now and think, I was just going to have one drink. It was just supposed to be one drink, but one drink led to another, and I was drunk, I was passed out, I sinned. I was just going to check the email, but there was no one there, and one link led to another link, and then I started looking at things on the internet. Or I was talking with my next-door neighbor, and uh, we started sharing about life experiences and so forth, and I started sharing about people and started talking about people made in the image of God and started criticizing them. And he thought, oh, my word, I can't believe I did that again. How is a person restored? Is it by saying, I will never do that again. I'm better than this. I, I will not do this again. Is that how a person gets restored? No. No. It, it takes something totally different. It takes looking at Jesus. Looking at him totally. He is the one that he invites you to follow him and to obey him. How does a person get restored? By looking to Jesus. You can stare at your failures all you want, but you're going to just stay right there in your same failures, doing it over and over and over again. If you want out, you have to look at Christ. That's what they had to do. They had to walk up to Galilee. And even there at Galilee, Peter gets tired. He's like, I'm going fishing. I'm tired of this. And they go fishing all night long. And how many fish did they catch? Nothing. But there is Jesus. He's got fire. He's got some fish already there. I bet he's got some tacos. And he's ready for them. He calls out to them and says, cast it on the other side. It says, John says, it's Jesus. Peter gets so excited about it. He jumps into the water and starts swimming there. They're rowing, trying to get to Jesus. How are they restored? By going to Jesus. He, he's waiting for them. He knows their failures. He knows what they would do. 
and He invites them to come to Him and He restores. Jesus restores the scattered to follow and obey by waiting for them after they fail. You remember Dave Ramsey, how he gave those advice? The advice only worked if they followed and obeyed what Dave Ramsey said. How does a person get restored to Jesus? Only by following and obeying what he says. That's the only way. That's the only way that a person can get restored to Jesus. Here we see that he restores them knowing all their sins. There might be someone here that has never accepted Christ as their Savior. They've, They've never put their trust in Jesus. And that person would need to acknowledge their sin before the Lord and accept Christ's death in their place and be saved. For other of us, though, maybe we've been focusing too much on our failures and what we've done wrong. And our perspective needs to be changed to put on Jesus and what he has done. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, thank you that in your grace and in your love, you chose us. Knowing that we were sinners, we were enjoying that sin, we were satisfied in that sin, yet your spirit convicted us, showed us our need of a Savior, and we put our faith in what Christ did. Thank you how you orchestrated all of that for your honor and glory and for our good. Father, I pray if someone's here has never trusted Christ as their Savior, that today, today could be that day of salvation. Father, for other of us that maybe we've gotten so discouraged from all the negatives in our life, I pray that today will be a day that we'll put our eyes on Christ. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Would you please stand and we'll sing the song of invitation.